0: Good morning, good morning, good morning. It's good to see each of you. Um, if I have not had a chance to meet you yet, I'm Alan. I have the privilege of being able to serve as the senior pastor here as well as one of the elders. And we are absolutely thrilled that you're worshiping with us uh, for those of you in the building and those of you that are worshiping online with us as well. Hopefully, when you came in this morning, you picked up a worship guide. And on the back of the, the front of the worship guide, you'll see uh, it says that we're studying the book of Acts, and uh, the, the, the theme is the way forward. And then on the back side, there is a place to take notes. gives you a little bit of an outline of where we're going. I know what you're doing. You're counting. You're like, there are eight lines here. Oh, my goodness. Uh, I'll try not to preach like there's eight lines here. So maybe you can take notes this morning as we walk through uh, the book of Acts together, or not the book of Acts, portion of the book of Acts. If you uh, have a Bible with you, uh, grab that. If you don't have a Bible near you, uh, with you, you should have one near you, like underneath a seat or on top of a seat there. Uh, the words will also be on the screen. Grab one of those Bibles. Turn to Acts chapter 4. And uh, if you don't have a Bible or you need a Bible, feel free to take the one there that's at the chair home with you. That would be um, a gift to you from us. What would you do personally if a, an authority figure told you to stop talking about Jesus? How would you react to that? I know that the majority of us, the vast majority of us, We're born here in the United States. I know the vast majority of us in this room have always lived in the United States. And so it may be hard for us to wrap our brain around this idea of an authority telling us, commanding us, charging us to no longer speak the name of Jesus. However, in the book of Acts, we see, beginning in chapters 3 and 4, moving forward throughout the entire book, there were multiple times where the disciples, the apostles, the followers of Jesus were told, they were commanded, they were charged to no longer speak the name Jesus. And unfortunately, around the world today, there are several countries where that same command is still in place. If you were ever put in a position, I pray that you aren't, but if you were ever put in the position where someone with true authority said, stop speaking the name Jesus, what would you do? I'm glad, uh, I started say I'm glad you asked that, I actually asked that of you. Uh, since I brought that up, we're going to look and see what happens in Acts chapter 4. To kind of set the stage, if you have been with us or haven't been with us, kind of remind you what's taken place thus far. In chapter 3 of the book of Acts, there's an occasion where Peter and John, two fathers of Jesus, meet a man who has been uh, been lame since birth, and he's over the age of 40. And Peter and John, in the name of Jesus, bring healing to this man. And then all of the crowds gather there near the temple where they are, and and Peter preaches. People trust in Jesus, and then the officials come to him and and, and come to them and say, what's going on here? We're not happy about what's taking place. And the officials are, are, are upset at them because the religious leaders, because they feel like their status and their authority is in question, the religious leaders. And so they arrested Peter and John, and earlier in chapter 4, here's uh, verse 18, says that they were charged, Peter and John, by the religious leaders to no longer speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus I want you to see this as that they're not to speak the name Jesus. They're not to teach the name Jesus. In other words, they're saying stop officially standing before a crowd of people and proclaiming and preaching the name Jesus. But not only that, I want you, I command you to stop even talking about him. Like when you go to work, when you go to school, when you walk in the marketplace, stop talking about Jesus. So what does Peter and John do? If you were here last week, you realize Peter and John don't really listen to that advice. And in fact, we find out they say they have no other option but to continue to preach the name of Jesus. Look in chapter 4, and they say in verse 20, For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And then the officials go, no, for real, like stop talking about Jesus and go about your way. So the question now is, once they leave the rulers and the authorities of the temple, what will they do with this charge to no longer preach the name of Jesus? Let's look at the text together. Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 31. This is immediately after they are released by the officials. It says, when they, talking about Peter and John, were released, they went to their friends and they reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. In other words, they recounted everything that we saw in chapters 3 and 4 and said, hey, and then they told us to stop talking about Jesus. And then 24. And when the crowd, when their friends heard it, they lifted their voices together to God, and here's what they prayed. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our Father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and then he quotes from Psalm chapter two, "Why did the Gentiles rage, and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. for truly in this city, they're in Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, they're thinking back a couple of months prior. They gathered against your holy servant Jesus, in verse 27, whom you anointed, both Herod, who was the king of the Jews, and Pontius Pilate, a leader among the Romans, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. They gathered together to do what? Verse 28. To do whatever your hand, God, and your plan, God, had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, Look upon their threats. Now he's talking about the the rulers that have told him to stop talking about Jesus. Look upon their threats and grant to your servants, Peter and John, to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you, God, stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And then 31. And when they had prayed... The place in which they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So here's Peter and John. They were arrested for healing a man. They were arrested for preaching that in Jesus there's resurrection from the dead. They were arrested, put into jail overnight. They were tried the next morning, if you will, against the Sanhedrin, who was the religious kind of supreme court, if you will, of, of the Jewish faith. And these religious leaders no longer wanted them to preach and teach about the name Jesus. And as we've already looked at this morning, they commanded Peter and John, stop talking about Jesus. They, they were bold as they preached Jesus in the temple. They were bold as they faced these uh, uh, religious leaders, and now they come back to their friends, it says in the ESV. What, what's it mean by th- their friends? It's the idea that they are no longer are around those that sympathize with the religious leaders. They are with their own people. If you look at the Greek, it actually means their own, and it means fellow believers. They are with fellow believers. Are they all the believers there? Probably not. Or all of the apostles there? We don't know. But we know that they are with their fellow believers. It's like they were with part of their church family. Maybe their whole church family. They were with them. And then in verse 24, after they relay what took place, what do the believers do? Look at 24. And when they heard the news, they lifted their voices together to God and said, I want us to look at this word together for a moment. Does that mean all of a sudden they had a, a scripted prayer and they all began to pray the words together? No. Does, does it mean they were all together in the same room? Yes, but that's not the real meaning of the word. Uh, does it mean, what does it mean? The word together, if you go to the Greek, it is a word that we've seen a couple of times already in the book of Acts. I, I'm going to try to pronounce it. I'm not, it's a long word, and my, my Greek is not good, but here is uh, what it is. Homo thum mudon. Uh, that's again, uh, madon, madon, that's what I meant to say. Homo thum madon, all right? And and that is the word, like homo, the same. Thumadon means together or same, mind or in one accord. They were praying together, meaning they were in agreement with one another. They were in one accord. This word is used 11 times in the New Testament. Ten of them are in the book of Acts. And two of them we've already found. You may want to jot it down on your notes. Acts chapter 1, verse 14 the word says in the ESV in one accord. And then in Acts chapter 2, verse 46, the word in the ESV is together. It's the same Greek word. In all accounts, it means to be of one mind, to having the same passion or the same desire to be in harmony together. So in other words, all of the believers said, Peter and John, the threat was made to you and you were told to no longer preach, but we know that we agree with you, Peter and John. We have no other option but to preach the name of Jesus and we're going to pray about this matter. How powerful is it when a group of believers come together to pray and they pray in one accord in agreement with each other? Apparently not very powerful. I don't see it on your faces. Can you imagine a group of believers believing in who God is and what he says in such a way that they are banded together praying with all confidence that our sovereign Lord hears our prayers? And that he answers our prayers. I've titled the message today, Confident Praying Leads to Bold Proclaiming. So when they prayed together, they were confident in their prayers. Stay with me. Their confidence is not in themselves. Their confidence is in God. But because of who God is and what God says about himself and his mission, they are confident as they pray. They know that what they're praying is what God wants of them. And because of that, they then boldly go out to preach and teach the name of Jesus, the very thing they were commanded not to do. Here's what I don't want you to do this morning. I don't want you to check out and go, well, this is a neat historical account, which it is, of what took place in the early church. But I live in College Station. And nobody told me I can't preach Jesus, and so I'm just going to hear what took place in the book of Acts and be grateful that they did what they did. No, these words apply to you and me, because even if no one tells us to stop preaching the name of Jesus, we all too often are not bold enough when we preach or teach, and perhaps we never tell others about Jesus. So this morning, whether you're facing opposition, persecution, difficulty, or whether everything is grand and glorious, all of us that are followers of jesus are commanded by him to go and be his witnesses where in jerusalem judea samaria and to the end of the earth acts 1 8 is not just for the 120 that were in the room that day it's for all of us so don't check out stay with me what does it mean what does it mean to say that confident praying leads to bold proclaiming so on your notes you're going to see two categories, and the first category has to do with what confident praying involves, and the second category is going to be what happens when, when um, or let me rephrase that. The second category is, is that bold proclaiming happens when we do certain things, okay? So confident praying involves what? The first one says knowing who God is. I don't know how well you paid attention to the prayer of the apostles and the followers of Jesus But that prayer is soaked in theology of who God is. It's not like, this is painful, God, would you do something about it? No, it is proclaiming to God who he is and to each other as they claim the promises of God's word based on who he is. This prayer is saturated in theological truth of who God is. So, let's look at some of the truth that we find here. Beginning, I'm going to kind of walk through. I may not mention verse by verse, but we're going to begin in verse 24 with their very first words. What are their words? Sovereign Lord. We sang about God's sovereignty a moment ago. What does it mean to say that God is sovereign over everything? It means that he is in charge. He has all power. He has full authority he's not just a good guy he's not just the best guy he's not just some uh, guy in the sky he is large and in charge he has authority over every aspect of life including yours you might have heard Howard a moment ago ask one of the kids hey does that mean I should pray to God and ask him if I should get that new bike We might be thinking, that's kind of silly. No, the reality is every decision we make in life should be in line with what the sovereign Lord has to say about it. A few weeks ago, I asked some folks, or all of us, to jot down some prayer requests. One of the prayer requests was, pray for me. I don't remember the exact wording, but pray for me because I want a new pair of shoes and I need to know if I should get them or not. My mom says, I already have too many shoes in my closet. And what I heard in that was not God tried to change my mom's idea. It was a teenager saying, No, for real. I want to know if this purchase is one I need to make or not. So God is sovereign over everything. Let's see what his sovereignty is found in. Look at the next little bit. He is the sovereign Lord who did what? He made the heaven, he made the sea, uh, sorry, the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. God is the creator of all things. If he's sovereign, then it's understandable that he's creator. If he's creator, it's understandable that he's sovereign. He knit you together in your mother's womb. You are not an accident. You are not just the result of biology. You're not just a result of the birds and the bees. You are the result of God's handiwork. And you may look in a mirror and you may not like that handiwork, but God says you are precious and he made you just as you are physically. That that phrase, even as I said, it can be twisted uh, and say, well, that means I can love whoever I want to. No, the Bible is very clear. There's two genders, male and female, and we are to be involved in in heterosexual activity that's within the context of one man one woman in marriage so i know i went sidebar right there but i had to be careful when i say that god made you precious as you are i'm talking about physical features or personality wise. sometimes we're like i don't like this person the reality is god crafted you and he made you what else do we see about god he speaks through scripture we see that in verse 25 it says that god spoke through scripture The reason I say scripture is, yes, it says David here, but he references in the verses following, Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And here's what he says in in, in the beginning of that, in 25. He says that God, through the mouth of our father David, said by the Holy Spirit. In other words, he's saying that David didn't write Psalm 1 and 2 on his own, but rather it was inspired by God's breath. He told David what to write. In this prayer, they acknowledge that God speaks to us through Scripture. Scripture is not just something we read or memorize. Scripture is not just what we know Bible stories about. Scripture is something that in the context of who God is, he speaks to us. Let's keep going through. Verses 26 through 28, in various ways, points out that nothing can stop God's plan from happening. How does it describe God's plan? It says that God's plan was predestined, verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan has predestined to take place. God always accomplishes his will, always. He's sovereign. Verse 29, Verse 29 is their plea to God and says, hey God, look upon their threats. And this idea of looking upon doesn't just mean look at the fact that we're being threatened against. No, it's look at us attentively. See what we're facing. Understand what we're facing. Seek to do something about what we're facing. He sees where we're at and he's attentive to us and he cares for us and he loves us. All of these things allow us to pray confidently when we know who God is. Keep looking. Verse 30, it says that he displays his power. They're saying use your hand to display your power and your handiwork. Verse 31, it's not the prayer, it's the after the prayer, but we see that the truth of who God is, that he answers our prayers. Now, that doesn't mean we always get the thing we pray about but he always answers according to his will so that his predestined plan is done. So, kind of the summary of this section is when we know who God is, we can pray confidently. The second one says, knowing what his word says. Verses 25 through 29 has to do with understanding what his word says. This helps us to know who God is. How do we know who God is? Yes, we experience him, but it's always got to be grounded in what his word says. If we want to know who God is, we need to know what his word says. If we want to pray confidently, we need to know who God is. We need to know what his word says about who he is and who we are. I said this a moment ago. When you look back at verse 25, we see that that God spoke by his Holy Spirit, through his servant David. In other words, this is the principle that points out that Scripture is inspired, and it's the inspired Word of God. It's breathed out by the Holy Spirit through the human authors that God chooses to use. So that truth needs to inform how we read the Scripture. The Scripture is not just some just the old book the, the scripture is not just some religious how to manual the scripture is different from any other writing religious writing or otherwise in that it is the only work that is inspired by god himself and therefore author, authoritative for every area of our lives i've already mentioned that verses 25 and 26 is a quotation from Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. So why do they quote this random set of verses? Like, why do they choose this as they pray? Because what they're doing is they're understanding who God is and what His Word says. They're looking back at what God says in His Word in Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, and they're seeing that it applies to their situation. So, if God's word is true, then it's going to speak to us and inform us how we react in our current situation. We sang also about this concept a moment ago that whenever the enemy means something for bad, God is actually able to use that for his good and for his glory. You see, Psalm 1, sorry, Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2 as well as it being recorded here in Acts chapter 25 and 26 when it says, why did the nations or the Gentiles rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? It's the idea that whenever someone plots against God, it is futile, it is futile, it is foolishness, it is pointless, it's going nowhere because his plans always succeed. So it's pointless to try to fight against what God's plans are. Let's think about three examples where something was done in Scripture to try to fight against what God is doing, a a recording in Scripture. Here's the first one I thought of. Remember Pharaoh back in Exodus when Pharaoh ordered that the the Hebrew baby boys would all be killed? Who's not killed? Moses, right? Because God is going to use Moses to rescue his people, but Satan's wanting to use this decision by Pharaoh to end God's plan. It doesn't work. Then fast forward to the New Testament. After the wise men or the magi come to see King Herod, King Herod decides that he's going to have all the male children. You remember this? He was going to have all the male children in Bethlehem and the surrounding areas killed. But who's already evacuated? Who's already gone? And that is Jesus. So Satan's trying to kill Jesus right there at the beginning by using the plans of Herod. And then we have what is mentioned here specifically in verse 27. Verse 27. But we see that that Pilate delivered Jesus over to be crucified, Satan thinking that he had won. But would you look closer at these verses? Acts chapter 4, it describes what they did in verse 27. And then in 28, where is the origin of the plans of these men? It says, whenever Jesus is crucified, verse 28, They're actually doing whatever God's hand and God's plan had predestined to take place. See, Pilate and Herod and the Gentiles and even the religious leaders of Israel all intended to kill Jesus, but that was God's plan from the very beginning that Jesus would be crucified for our sins. And so now... Peter and the followers of Jesus are praying that now in their situation where the religious leaders are meaning harm for them and threatening them and telling them to no longer preach about Jesus, these leaders that are plotting against them now, it's pointless because God's plan will continue to succeed because Jesus has sent them out as their witness, his witnesses and they would say yes to that. What we see in God's word is this, that the God of the word has provided victory in the past, and he will do it again. That what Satan has meant for evil, God has actually planned and used it, and he will do it again. So kind of the summary for this section is that when we know what the word of God says, we can pray confidently. And then the last thing in this section is knowing what the mission is. Confident praying involves knowing who God is. Confident praying involves knowing what the Word of God says. And confident praying involves knowing, remembering, and living out what the mission is. You see, the followers of Jesus, Peter and John, the apostles, the early church, they were able to say yes to the mission of God. What's the mission of God? To be his witnesses to the end of the earth. And they were able to say yes to that in spite of what the religious leader said to them because they knew who God is and they knew what his word said and that enabled them to go out and live out the mission. Please notice and remember that our mission isn't about our being comfortable. Our mission is to go and preach the gospel regardless of the cost. What could have happened that day? Peter and John went and told him. The disciples could have gotten together and said, you know what? We're going to have a protest. By God, we're going to march the streets of Jerusalem. We're going to hold up our picket signs, and we're going to show them what for. Like, We're going to plan a protest. Let's go into social action right now. We've got to do something about it. Call our senators. Let's get to work. I'm not making light of, at times, doing those things. But they didn't do that, right? They didn't plan a protest. Also, what did their prayer not involve? At least as it's recorded here, and I believe that, that, that the Holy Spirit led Luke to record what they prayed, so I don't think it happened. They, what's not recorded here is them praying that opposition or persecution would end. That, that wasn't like a matter of prayer. They didn't say, Dear Lord, help us to preach boldly, but more importantly, make them stop telling us to stop preaching about Jesus. They, they don't pray for the persecution to end. In fact, as we read the book of Acts, we're seeing that persecution is just now starting. They didn't ask that these religious leaders come to a demise or, or that they be uh, like get revenge on these leaders, like give them something, God, like take them down, destroy them. No, they're praying for boldness to continue regardless of what the leaders say. Instead, they prayed for the mission to be boldly carried out. Look at verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats. And God, because of their threats, would you grant to us, your servants, that we would continue to speak your word with all boldness. They simply prayed to God for who he is, pointing back to scripture that says who God is, and they said, God, in light of all of that, give us boldness. That we would live out the mission that Jesus gave to us. Church, if we're not careful, especially here in the United States of America, we will make church and Christianity all about me. I'm not saying all about Alan Pittman. I'm saying insert your name. If we're not careful, we will make church and Christianity all about me all about my comfort all about my desires guys when we understand what the mission is then we'll understand that it's all about him and his glory to the nations and whether it's comfortable or not it may be it may not at different times whether it's comfortable or not is beside the point it's all for his glory so as your pastor and as one of the elders here Are the decisions that I make and speak into based on what makes me more comfortable? At times, if I'm not careful, that answer can be yes because I want to love you and therefore at times I'm not willing to step on your toes when I should be stepping on your toes. So, That's not like, and that's where it's going to stay. That's like Alan processing where he's at in this whole equation. Guys, it's not about my comfort. It's got to be for his glory and for his mission. Insert yourself. In what ways may you be focused on your comfortableness as opposed to the mission? Here at our church, we describe the mission this way. Be a disciple, make disciples, be the church to the glory of God. What does it even mean to be a disciple? The word disciple carries with it a lot of connotation, yes. The word disciple, like with a simple non-biblically based answer, would just simply mean a learner or a follower of someone, maybe uh, following someone, learning their trade, uh, uh, you know, being an apprentice, But the word disciple in the context that Jesus and and, and the writers of Scripture mean, it means much more than that. To be a disciple means to acknowledge that I am a sinner. And that because of my sin, I have no right, no privilege, no ability to be in right standing with God and that because of my sin, I am separated from God, and an understanding that I'm a sinner in need of forgiveness is the beginning point of what it means to be a disciple. And so God's word is clear, that because of our sin, we are to repent of our sins, trusting that Jesus and what he did on the cross by dying for our sin, by paying the price that you and I deserve, by overcoming sin and death and the grave and being raised three days later that if we place our faith and our trust in jesus christ and in him alone for there's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved that we can experience salvation now i'm not finished describing a a disciple A disciple is not one that says simply yes to Jesus and receive the forgiveness of sins. Rather, a disciple is one that does those things through God's grace, through the faith that God gives to us, and as a result of that, he or she begins to follow Jesus instead of their own way. To be a disciple means to say yes to God, to say yes to Jesus. As a friend of mine would describe it sometimes, to say yes to God and then let him put uh, all the details on the map after that. Like, I'm not waiting to find out what God wants me to do. I'm just saying yes to him. So my question is this. Have you placed your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ? If not, would you consider doing that today? Now, I know what you're thinking, you're doing the math, you're like, Alan, you're halfway through your sermon. No, actually, I promise you, I'm more than halfway through it. I just wanted that front end to be the bulk of everything that we we see about the second part. The second part is found in one verse uh, specifically, and that is in verse 31. For the next couple of minutes, we'll be looking specifically at Acts chapter 4, verse 31. Before I do that, though, I do have one more thing I want to throw on the screen, and that is this. The character of God and the truth of God, I'm sorry, the character of God and the truth of his word brings us confidence to stay on mission. That whole first section of this sermon was to help us to see that the character of God, in other words, who he is, and the truth of what his word says, those are the things that bring us the confidence to stay on mission. So if we're staying on mission, That means we're going to boldly proclaim the name of Jesus. So now we're ready for the second part. The second part says this. Bold proclaiming happens when, and we're going to look at three things. The first one says this. When God is present with us. I want to be really careful, and you hear me clearly here. God is always present. Like It's not like, oh, I hope he's here today. Or it's like, I hope I don't scare him off today. God is always present with us. Okay, I want you to hear me say that clearly. Because I'm going to try to explain what I mean by this phrase, Um, uh, That bold proclaiming happens when God is present with us. He's always present but we have to remember that and acknowledge that. So what do they do? I said one verse, sorry, look back at verse 30. For them to see that God was present, they said, hey God, would you mind stretching out your hand and healing and bringing signs and wonders and performing all of that in the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They ask him to proudly display his presence so that they could see his presence as well as those around them could as well i'm not going to read the verse but acts five twelve we see that god does that you may even want to jot that down and look at, at it later look back at verse 31 now the way that they acknowledged and saw that he was present with them was found in the first part of thirty-one, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. Like it was shaken after they prayed. I remember a few years ago, Alana and I went to Guatemala for a mission trip, and I don't know if you've ever been in Guatemala, that part of the world or not. But they they have um, they have earth they have um, earthquakes in that area. They kind of told us and warned us and all of that. And we were about halfway through the week, and I was in my bunk bed in the cabin, uh, and it was kind of the early morning hours, and I was kind of, I kind of woke up, and I I thought one of the kids was like, we'd already had a prank pulled on us that night, and I I thought there was somebody shaking and rattling my my bed, my bunk bed, you know, and then I realized, nope, ain't nobody down there, and I realized there is something else going on. It was an earthquake, right? And so, like, I get off my bed eventually and by the time I acknowledge and realize I probably should go out of the building that's kind of when the tremor stopped but I can't imagine experiencing at the conclusion of a prayer something even much stronger than that I don't know how strong it was I just know it was noticeable that when they finished praying the room the place the building was shaken when was the last time That you prayed and not because of you, not because of your prayer, other than the fact that it was in tandem with who God is and what his his word says. When is the last time that you experienced God's power as an answer to your prayer? I'm not saying when was the last time the room was literally physically shaken like it was in this occasion, but when is the last time that we acknowledged and saw the power of God? When's the last time we prayed for something that was big enough that for God to show up would be clear and evident? All too often, I have to rewind the clock several years to think of a time where I experienced that. I do know there were couple of occasions in my life, one specifically when I was a youth pastor up in Tennessee. We had a girl in my youth group that had a brain tumor. We took her to Vanderbilt. They did the surgery. They said it's not looking good. Like we can't get to the tumor. We can't get it out. We don't know what to do. A few days past, we've prayed for her over and over again. They've shaved her head to get ready for it. They go in for the next procedure and guess what? There's not anything there. It's gone. I don't care what the doctors say, God did that. There's no other explanation. When's the last time we prayed for the salvation of a family member or a friend or a coworker, and someone shared the gospel with them and we celebrate the power of God? Guys, we've got to pray boldly. We've got to pray confidently. We've got to proclaim confidently and boldly so that God's glory would be raised. So that the place would shake. I'm not saying we're going to start hanging from the rafters in the ceiling and run around and act crazy. I'm saying the power of God when it's on display is clear and evident and there's no denying it. That day when they healed that man because of the name of Jesus Christ, those religious leaders had told them to stop preaching Jesus. Why did they tell them that? Because there was no disputing the healing had happened. They couldn't couldn't deny it. Doesn't mean they trusted and believed, but they couldn't tonight. Guys, we need bold, confident praying and bold, confident proclamation that God's glory would be extended. So, God's presence, that's when bold. Procl- if you had prayed that prayer and the room had shaken, don't you think you'd get up out your happy seat and go out there and start preaching? Like, God is clear, like, we prayed for it. You showed up. We kind of sort of hoped you would. No, they didn't because they really were being confident with their praying. And they went out, and they preached the good news. All right, when else? Bold proclaiming happens when his Holy Spirit empowers us. In some ways, this is the same thing. It's like kissing cousins, right? God's presence is there. The Holy Spirit empowers us. But let's look at a phrase that is familiar in the book of Acts. We've read it two or three times already. Here's what it says in verse 31. If i got to turn to the right page here. It says, after the building was shaken, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm going to repeat myself from last week. This is not a second blessing. This is not, oh, they didn't have the Holy Spirit before. No, they had the Holy Spirit before. He doesn't come into followers of Jesus and then depart. He stays with us. But the reality is sometimes we're living our lives. We're ignoring the fact the Holy Spirit is with us. And we need to be reminded that he is with us and he's empowering us and he's emboldening us to go out and preach the gospel. So here's Peter. Every time you see this phrase, they were filled with the Holy Spirit, we see every single time in the book of Acts that the very next thing they were doing was proclaiming the gospel. We need we need the Holy Spirit to proclaim for us to be able to proclaim Jesus. Why do we need the Holy Spirit? Because he's the one who gives us the words to say. Why do we need the Holy Spirit? It's because he guides our conversation. Why do we need the Holy Spirit? He is the one who helps us to be bold with our proclamation. Like with my own strength, I kind of want to go, would you maybe come to church with me? No, I need to be bold with it. The Holy Spirit gives us that boldness. And here's the deal as well. Even if you preach the gospel clearly, it's not your job to convict the other person of their sin. It's the role of the Holy Spirit. So why do we need the Holy Spirit to preach boldly? Because he's the one who does the work of conviction. So when God is present with us, which he always is, when the Holy Spirit empowers us, we are able to boldly share the gospel. And then the last thing on this one, bold proclaiming happens not only when God is present with us and we know it, not only Does bold proclaiming happen when his spirit empowers us? Bold proclaiming, it says here, happens when we courageously speak the word of God. So look at the end of verse 31. The prayer is answered. The place is shaken. The Holy Spirit fills them. And the third thing is they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Can I ask a question that maybe you're wondering? Why did Peter and John need to pray this prayer? Weren't they already pretty bold earlier? Like, didn't they stand in the face of these religious leaders that could have maintained them in prison or had them killed? And didn't they basically point at them and say, you were the one that crucified Jesus? And didn't they stand before them and say, nope, we're going to keep preaching Jesus. So why did they feel the urgency to pray for boldness when they already were bold? Why even bother to pray for boldness? The answer is this, they knew that they couldn't. They wouldn't continue being bold without God's help. The moment they said, well, we don't got to pray about that. We showed them last time. We'll show them again. Is the moment that they wouldn't be bold. Peter remembers he denied Jesus three times on a certain night, just a couple months prior to this. And Peter knew that he had to pray for boldness. Same thing happens for us. You and I, we never arrive. You and I, we must continue to rely on God. You and I must never try to do it on our own. You and I, we must continue to proclaim boldly. You and I need the Holy Spirit to do this. We can't do it on our own. So God's word in Acts chapter 4 shows us That we're to press on with the mission, which is to boldly proclaim the name of Jesus, regardless of what other people say to us. And in order to do that, we need to seek the Lord, allow him to empower us. And all of that is based on not ourselves, not our own courage, not our own personality. Rather, it's all based on knowing who God is and knowing what his word has to say and trusting him to empower us kind of the summary that I have for this whole section that I'd like to put on the screen, it's not on your notes, is that God's presence and God's empowering spirit sends us out courageously to courageously preach Jesus. I want to kind of wrap all of this up. Here are some truths, and it's not necessarily the main preaching of this text, but the truths that we see in this church. This church in the book of Acts was not a perfect church. We will find that out soon enough. But in this occasion, in Acts chapter 4, what we see in this church is an example for you and I to follow. Here's the kind of church they were. While they weren't perfect, they were a united church. We talked about that, praying in one accord. They were a praying church. They were a proclaiming church. And therefore, they were a church on mission. Guys, if we want to live out and not just put a pretty picture on the wall that says, be a disciple, make disciples, be the church of the glory of God. If we really want to live that out, then we've got to be united, unified as a church. We've got to be praying as a church. We've got to be proclaiming as a church. And we will live our mission out. My question is, are we doing that? Let's be a church who prays confidently and proclaims boldly. So I've got two key questions to ask you. How's your prayer life? And are you boldly proclaiming Jesus? How's your prayer life? And are you boldly proclaiming Jesus? Under each of those questions, I want to ask one question to kind of help you answer that. So on this idea of how's your prayer life, here's my question. Are you praying for your comfort? Or are you praying for God's plan and God's mission? Oh, Alan, I've never sat down and said, God, give me an air conditioner. I'm not saying that. But if we listen to the words of our prayer, all too often we can make it about ourselves ourselves. Instead about his mission. So how's your prayer life? And is your prayer life focused on your comfort or God's plan? And then the second big question was, are you boldly proclaiming Jesus? And so here's the question that may help you answer that. Are you relying on yourself? Or are you relying on God's presence and his Holy Spirit to proclaim the gospel? I I don't know where you are this morning what God may be leading you to do. There's several things God could be leading you to do. To say yes to Him for salvation. That's the most important thing. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, that's the most important thing. It could be that you're already a follower of Jesus and you're feeling prompted and convicted by the Holy Spirit to work, not work on, because it sounds like you're gonna prove it, but to to focus, allow God's work to be in you, to be prioritizing the the prayer in your life okay so it could be that you're you're sensing God saying hey it's time for prayer life to really matter for you and it could be no I've got those not perfect but those are kind of I'm going with those but maybe God's prompting you to proclaim the gospel maybe he's prompting you to invite a friend to church on Easter Sunday maybe he's Prompting you to um, to give financially, so that we can continue to uh, proclaim the gospel. Maybe he's calling you to to infuse your hope group with these these character traits of of prayer and boldly proclaiming the gospel. Maybe it's a conversation you need to have with a family member or a coworker. Maybe it's prayer that you need to have over the friend over a friend that doesn't know Jesus. But would we take just a moment, not to run out the door or go to the bathroom or make plans for lunch or? Send a text unless it's on this topic. Let's focus for just a moment. Where is God leading? And will we say yes to him? The mission is clear. We're to boldly proclaim the name of Jesus for his glory to all nations. Are we serious enough to say yes to him? I'm going to lead us in prayer. After the prayer is over with, some music will begin, and some guys will start passing some uh, offering plates. And if you came financially prepared to give, then that's there. If you're a guest, we'd love for you to just drop in the connection card. Uh, maybe there's something on the connection card for a spiritual decision or something you need to jot down. There'll also be an opportunity for us to sing together as a church family. This is a whole kind of enchilada to respond to God and to his word this morning. Do not sit there going, well, that was kind of a neat service let the Holy Spirit guide and prompt you this morning. And if you need to come pray at the altar, it's here. If you need to come pray with me, I'm here. If you need to journal, whatever you need to do, say yes to him as we seek to be the kind of church family God is leading us to be. Let me pray for us.